We're reading from 1 Peter 3, verse 8 to 22. Okay. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to, you, to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are evil to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against good behaviour, your good behaviour in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience... Oh, sorry. Jumped. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but are made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits for those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand, at God's right hand, with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Thanks, Nicole. Well, the guy uh, up on the screen, or about to be up on the screen, is... A uh, guy named David Eastman, a public servant from Canberra who was convicted of murder in 1995. Uh, it was alleged then that he shot and killed the AFP Assistant Commissioner Colin Winchester in 1989 after the AFP refused to help him appeal an assault charge. And after 19 years in custody, uh, the ACT Supreme Court quashed that conviction as wrongful and released David from prison. And then just four years later, that same Supreme Court found him not guilty of the crime. Uh, He was cleared of the charges, and it was admitted to be a miscarriage of justice. And so you might say that after 23 years in prison, Eastman was vindicated. He was vindicated. And that word vindication is the concept that we are focusing on today. 
as we step into this next passage in 1 Peter. Vindication, to, to be cleared of blame or suspicion, to be shown or proven right. And it's a little bit different to one of our other favourite theological words, uh, which is the word justification. They're quite similar, but where justification is the broader term of being made or proven right, vindication is that same rightness, but after wrongful accusation, or long-suffering, or mistreatment. Vindication is the longing of convicted innocence. Vindication is the deep desire of those who suffer injustice. Vindication is the yearning of persecuted Christians. The people who received Peter's letter in the ancient world would have, would have been desperate to hear words of hope and vindication. Christians in our world that we've talked about who are oppressed or abused or sometimes killed keenly desire words of hope and vindication. And closer to home where Christians are losing jobs and copping fines or being publicly shamed also need to hear such words of hope and vindication. So we're going to discover what Peter tells us about vindicated sufferers this morning, which as we've discussed is or is going to be all of us who believe in Jesus. And the first thing that we find is that vindication is for the righteous. Vindication is for the righteous, for the righteous who suffer wrongfully, not for the wrong who suffer rightfully. For those who suffer for doing good, not for doing evil. And throughout these couple of chapters, chapter 3 and 4 in 1 Peter, and even back in chapter 2, there's this continual question of cause. What is the cause of your suffering? Why is it happening? Is it for doing right or is it for doing wrong? Is it for being a Christian or is it for being a criminal? And so a little later on in chapter 4 verse 15, Peter says, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. But if you suffer as a Christian, well, that's a different story. See, if you were rightfully imprisoned for murder or theft or something like that, there is no sense wishing for vindication because no injustice has been done. Things are as they should be. And so it goes for lesser offences. If you meddle in people's business, if you're a meddler, and you gossip behind their backs, then there is no vindication when you are eventually ostracized and rejected as an untrustworthy person. That's to be expected. Christians can hope for vindication when they're accused of doing wrong despite living such good lives. But they can't hope for vindication if they're being arrogant jerks to the people around them. It's one thing to suffer for sharing the gospel with gentleness and respect. It's another to suffer for hypocritical judgment or for self-centered victimhood. 
It's one thing to suffer for speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. It's another to suffer for hateful speech against leaders or against others who don't share your opinion. There's no vindication for being a jerk. Perhaps I can put it that way. Peter says, For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For doing good for righteousness. This is the reminder, really, of the quote uh, there in the passage from Psalm 34, which talks about avoiding deceitful speech, turning from evil and doing good, seeking peace and pursuing it, being righteous, being righteous people. But as soon as we hear that word righteous, and and I'm thinking for many of you, as soon as you saw it up there as the first point, we kind of remember Romans chapter 3, don't we? That there is no one who is righteous. That there are none who do good, it says. And that our deceitful words and the things that come out of our mouths are usually the first indicator of our depravity and sin. I mean, I used this example at the beginning of David Eastman, but he was no saint. He was far from it. He had so many red marks on his record. And and we don't really know whether or not he was guilty. None of us are righteous. But in that same chapter in Romans, it says, though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all are justified freely through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, and Peter talks a lot about that as well, to be received by faith, to be believed in. So we can be justified, we can be made right through Jesus, which means we can also hope for vindication through Jesus. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. But it's also through Jesus that we seek to do good in response, in grace. He makes it possible for us to do right and to live righteously. He makes it possible for us to, in verse 8, be like-minded and be sympathetic and be compassionate and be humble towards others, to love one another to repay evil with blessing in the next verse, to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And by the way, there's your far better use of words, not deceitful speech, but gospel speech. And to do that with gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. To share the gospel gently. To share it respectfully. That's worth suffering for. No doubt about it, that is worth suffering for. And vindication for that suffering will definitely come. But to suffer for self-righteousness, for arrogance, that's not God's will for us. That's a poor reason for suffering. And I'm not saying that we can't be forgiven for it. 
And I'm not saying that Jesus can't justify jerks. But I am saying that vindication is for the gentle, for the humble, for the forgiven. And that if there's repentance by nature, it cannot coexist with self-righteousness and a jerk-like attitude. So it's worth all of us thinking about this when we argue for faith or for freedom or for Christian values. Am I being self-righteous or Christ-righteous? Have a think about that when you think about arguments or discussions that you might have with people. Am I being self-righteous or Christ-righteous? Am I being a jerk in this situation right now as I talk to this person? Or am I being gentle? Am I being arrogant or am I being humble? Vindication is for the righteous. And secondly, vindication is from God. It's from God and from Him alone, not from others, not from yourself, from God. And it's worth dipping back uh, at this point a little bit into last week's passage on submission. There we saw how holiness is expressed in the call to submit to authorities, whether we're talking about government or your boss or your marriage partner or all these different situations. We should submit and obey as long as it doesn't prevent us from submitting to and obeying God first and foremost. But here's the mistake that I think we're likely to make. We then expect vindication from those same authorities. We think that if we live up to our end of the bargain, you know, as good citizens or as good employees or as good spouses or whatever it might be, well, then they're going to live up to their end and they're going to treat us with equal respect and justice. But there's no guarantees of that. We, we shouldn't expect that. When the authorities are sinful, broken people like everybody else, We cannot expect vindication from them. If you tell Christians in Afghanistan right now that submission to the government will be rewarded with justice, you will get blank looks at best. If you tell residents of the world's longest lockdown that their government's going to make it up to them one day, you'll get laughed at. If you tell a fired employee that their boss will come crawling back to them on their hands and knees and beg them to return they'll tell you you're a fool. If you tell the wife of an unloving husband or an abusive husband that one day it'll just all be better in this life, you can't blame her for dismissing that outright, can you? There is no guarantees of vindication from others. And as Christians become more and more oppressed by the secular culture, We cannot expect vindication from that direction. And see, we're not called, particularly here in 1 Peter, we're not called to do good and to speak good to others so that they thank us or that they repay us or that they, you know, they they act kindly towards us. We're called to do good and to speak good to them so that one day, 
they might give glory to God. And even if they don't, God will be glorified in his justice. And it is he who will vindicate us on the day he visits. Consider the Psalms. There's one quoted here in the passage. The Psalms are generally full of vindication language. The psalmist is often pleading with God for vindication, for release from his suffering. And what we notice throughout the Psalms is that his appeal is so often based on his righteousness, on his own blameless life. But his request is directed to God because vindication comes from God. That's what that quote has. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer. And so some of these prayers, like in Psalm 17, Hear me, Lord, my plea is just. Listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right in the heart. Or Psalm 26, Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. Or Psalm 7, let the Lord judge the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. And there's plenty more examples throughout the book. Job, as well, also often pleads for such vindication. He and the psalm writers, they acknowledge that it's the Lord who judges, not us. It is the Lord who judges. It is the Lord who justifies. It is the Lord who vindicates. And he does it based on our righteousness. Which thankfully, we have in Christ. So let me ask, where are you seeking vindication from? Are you seeking it from the government? Are you seeking it from your boss or your teacher? Are you seeking it from your spouse or your parent or someone else? Or are you seeking it maybe from yourself? Like, I'm going to achieve my own vindication. Are you a bit of a self-made hero, a bit like Andy Dufresne in The Shawshank Redemption? He gets imprisoned wrongfully, but he achieves his own justice by escaping. And not only that, he takes the warden's crooked money and then he goes and he lives out all of his days on a beautiful beach in Mexico. But if you ask any true sufferer of injustice or oppression, they will tell you there's little hope in vindication from yourself. You can only find vindication in God and only through his son, Jesus. And that brings us to the last point, that vindication comes through Jesus' victory. And if I was just to highlight one contrasting channel that it doesn't come through, it would be this, it doesn't come through vengeance. Verse 9 says there, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Instead, repay evil with blessing. Don't react to opposition with opposition. React with love. Don't seek vindication through 
revenge, but seek it through peace and compassion and humility to all those you engage with. Paul says very similar to this in Romans chapter 12. In fact, the whole of Romans 12 uh, has a lot that is like uh, 1 Peter. Go away and read it if you want to today. He says they're very similar. Do not repay anyone for evil, sorry, evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Again, live such good lives. And then he continues, he says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And suffer for it, we might add. This is the way of love. This is the Christian way. And vindication will come, not from others, but from God. Not through vengeance or self-justification, but through Jesus. Which brings us to the last part of the passage in verses 18 to 22. Now I have to tell you that these verses are some of the most difficult to interpret in the whole of the New Testament. Uh, All sorts of questions arise when we come to these and theologians have been debating them for centuries. This question over when Jesus proclaims to these imprisoned spirits. You know, is it in the days of Noah? Somehow Jesus speaking through Noah or embodying in, in Noah? Is it between his death and resurrection? Is it after his resurrection? There's this question of who are these spirits? Are they unbelievers who have died like Noah's neighbors who drowned in the flood? Are they Old Testament believers waiting to be risen? Or are they fallen angels and other Demons and powers. And there's question over what Jesus proclaimed. A second chance for redemption to those who have died. Is it, is it a completion of redemption through his resurrection? Is it final condemnation at judgment day? You don't need to worry about all the, the different questions, but that's just a taste of the difficulties. I do want to share the interpretation I most agree with, but I, I can't say that I've definitely got it right. But what I do believe is that no matter these differing views on this passage, it doesn't change the overall encouragement that we find here, which is Jesus' vindication and ours through him. So what is initially clear is Jesus' suffering, death and substitution in verse 18 there. That is, he suffered for us. He, the righteous, for us, the unrighteous. And again, that's where our righteousness comes from, from Jesus, nowhere else. And he does that in order to reconcile us with God, to reunite us with God, our Father, our Maker. And then comes his resurrection, his proclamation, his authority. He was made alive in the Spirit, it says, and after being made alive, he proclaimed to the imprisoned spirits over whom he has full authority. 
And perhaps to give us a good bit of context for this passage, I just want to read a little segment from Peter's second letter. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 helps us a little bit here. And it says there, and there's some very interesting stuff in 2 Peter. It says there, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if this is so then the Lord knows how to rescue the the godly from trials and hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. So what is clear is that both fallen angels and authorities and the ungodly are held until the day of judgment. And whether it's between his death and resurrection or after his resurrection, uh, most likely after, Jesus proclaims his victory to them. And in so doing, their condemnation. Most likely it's talking about the angels, authorities and powers that we see in verse 22. So as I said, all of those unknowns are not as important as this theme of God's vindication, which first we see in Jesus Christ, who was righteous, and yet he suffered for the unrighteous. You might say that that is a wrongful or unjust conviction, even though he voluntarily submitted to it. And so vindication was due the Son of God. And God did vindicate him. He exalted him to God's right hand. And now all the angels and authorities and powers, it says, are in submission to him. He submitted. Now they are in submission to him. He is victorious. He is the Lord. And then secondly, even though we are unrighteous, we are made righteous through Jesus. So now when we suffer, it is also wrongful and unjust, especially when we are doing it for preaching his name. And so we also will be vindicated. Whether our suffering is at the hand of spiritual powers or of human authorities or of unbelievers in general, all wrongs will eventually be righted. Believers will be saved. The ungodly will be condemned. And Peter shows us in this passage that this is what baptism stands for. It symbolizes salvation and a clear conscience, a pure conscience toward God through water. Just like uh, Noah and his family were vindicated after suffering ridicule for building this giant ark in the desert. So we will be vindicated after suffering malice or slander or whatever else. Baptism signifies the change of our suffering from the right suffering for wrongdoers to the wrong suffering of the righteous. 
So our vindication is not in self-centered victimhood. It's not in self-serving vindictiveness. Our vindication is in Christ's victory, in his lordship. So I want to finish with three essential responses. And if at this point you've been sort of glazing over a little bit or, you know, just the sleep is creeping in, um, wake up. Because these three things are essential for us to take away. Absolutely essential from this passage. Three responses to the victory of Jesus. Firstly, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. There at the end of verse 14, it says, we shouldn't fear their threats or be frightened. We read the same, didn't we, in Revelation chapter 2 before. Don't be afraid. It says it throughout Scripture. Do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Your God is with you. Vindication is from Him, and it is guaranteed through Jesus Christ. Jesus comes, and at the end, before His ascension, He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All of it. He is the Lord over all beings. Everyone and everything must submit to Him. We we sang it numerous times before. Every knee will bow before Him. So do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of those who can hurt the body, but not touch the soul. And then secondly, there at the start of verse 15, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Revere Him. Fear Him. Be in awe of the Lord. Acknowledge His power and His authority. That of King Jesus. Confess, profess His superiority over every other person, over every leader, over every government in this world and throughout history. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And don't just profess that on some days or in some moods or in some parts of your life. Revere Him in your hearts every day. No matter how you feel, in every single part of your life, Jesus is Lord. And then lastly, the next part of verse 15, speak of this hope. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared. Everyone is going to face judgment. Everyone you know. Everyone must submit to Jesus Christ. So let's urge that people do that now and here and today. Maybe you don't follow Jesus yet, and I'm urging you. Submit to the Lord rather than waiting for that day that God returns, the day of judgment. Share your hope. Share your courage in the midst of suffering. Share the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father God, we just profess together this morning that Jesus is Lord. King of kings, the Lord of lords. Over every thing, over every person, over every authority. All in submission to him. And so we confess, Lord, that we do not need to be afraid. Forgive us when we are. That he should be the Lord of our lives and the Lord in our hearts. Forgive us when we put other things in his place. And that we need to share his lordship, his victory with all those around us. Forgive us, Lord, when we're too afraid. Help us, Lord, not to fear those who can harm the body, but not the soul. Help us to fear and revere and be in awe of the one who, after destroying the body, can cast our souls into hell. And Lord, if we are to suffer, when we suffer, we pray that we seek vindication in you and in you alone. Amen.